Awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, my name is Seth, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East, and I'm just, guys, I'm really excited. I'm jazzed. I'm pumped. I'm exuberant. Any other adjective that you can use uh, about uh, diving in and continuing our conversations in this series that we have been calling If Jesus Rose from the Dead. And so if you haven't been around or you haven't been able to check out some of these conversations in this series that we began on Easter weekend several weekends ago, here's what we've been doing kind of at a high level. We've been looking at Jesus's resurrection and we've been looking to unpack a little bit of the implications or the significance, maybe better yet, the ramifications of Jesus's resurrection. First of all, for what it says about Jesus and his claims, and then specifically, what, if anything, it has to do with our present day life and our present day experiences. And so the way that we've been going about this is we have been using or leveraging this if-then statement and completing that statement in some different ways each week. And so last week, what we did is we completed the statement by saying, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it says something about my present life. And really what we did there is we kind of took a look at our identity. In other words, uh, in light of Jesus' resurrection, what does God say about who we are as human beings or as his people? And then how should we interpret that or understand that or look at ourselves in light of what God says? So this week, we're going to kind of take this present life idea from a different angle. And we're going to complete the sentence like this. The if-then statement is going to go this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, it says something about my present purpose. <clears throat> okay? So if Jesus rose from the dead, it says something about my present purpose. Now, again, my name is Seth. If you don't know me, here's, here's something that you need to know. I have been married now for 15 years. My wife and I celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary last October. That's right. Yeah, right. They told me that if I paused briefly right there, that I'd get some applause, and that would encourage me. So thank you very much for that. So over the course of the last 15 years, our family has grown by, by three. So we are now a family of five. We have a lovely 12-year-old daughter named Elena. She is the sweetest person on the face of the planet. Uh, we have a nine-year-old girl named Hannah, and she is uh, very rambunctious. And then we have this six-year-old spawn of something this rambunctious little, we call him the dude, his name is Caleb, okay? So here's something you need to know about Caleb. About four years ago, he's six right now, he's going to be seven in a couple months. About four years ago, when he was round about three years of age, we were successfully able to potty train Caleb. Now, I already heard a laugh, that means you're a parent, because if you're a parent and you've ever had to go through the rigorous exercise of potty training your children, you know that it can be excruciatingly painful, right? So um, we potty trained Caleb, and it was actually a pretty easy experience in comparison with his older siblings. They took a little longer, but he kind of picked it up uh, pretty quickly. And so we potty trained him when he was three, but uh, like many other kids his age, even when they're potty trained, um, he sort of had a little bit more trouble mastering the art of holding his bladder at night, okay? So frequently, mom and dad would go into his room every morning and be greeted with rivers of living urine that were like flowing out of his bed, and I know it's gross, and you can groan, it's totally okay. So, and so he, he kind of didn't master this art, and, uh, and, and here's, here's, here's the thing you need to know about Caleb. Um, the, 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 guy was, the guy was very sad about this whole circumstance, this whole situation, and so um, he's struggling with holding his bladder, and if you, know, if you know anything about what that looks like as a parent, waking up in the middle of the night to take care of a wet bed and wet clothes is super disorienting. It can be super frustrating as a parent, can't it? 
And usually the sequence overnight kind of goes something like this. First, you hear what I call is the whimper. (laughs) You hear it echo in the room just down the hall. It's the whimper. And then if you're a guy, you know that the next step is for you to lie absolutely still (laughs) for at least the next two minutes and hoping that your wife's maternal instinct like engages and she goes and takes care of the business for you. And when that doesn't happen, you know that you have been nominated by your wife to handle this business on that particular night. And then usually what happens is you get up and you kind of stumble across your room. You're just frustrated at life. You go down the hall, you walk in the room, and usually you're greeted by the same exact scene every time. It's your son standing next to his bed, and he's surprisingly willing to own his own sin. Daddy, I wet the bed. Like, and it's exactly like that. I wet the bed, daddy. And then after about a half an hour, it's just a really long, drawn-out process, isn't it? After about a half an hour, finally, you have fresh clothes on the child, you have fresh sheets on the bed, and you have a fresh chip on your shoulder at life, right? So eventually, after a while, Caleb caught on and he started to string up some consecutive dry nights, which his mom and I were super thankful for. And we were, again, he was, he was sad about wetting the bed so often at night that when he started to string together these dry nights, my wife and I were trying to be super encouraging to him, like, buddy, you woke up dry again. Great job, man. You're the best. No other three-year-old has ever woke up dry. You're the man, dude. And so we continue to do this, and uh, he strung together these dry nights consecutively for about like six months until one fateful night. One fateful night, I heard it again, that dreadful whimper. I heard the whimper, and I uh, did the obligatory stoic lying still, I'm asleep move. Didn't work, so I was clearly nominated for the task got up, stumbled across my room, down the hall, stumbled into his room, and Caleb was standing like he normally was, except he wasn't standing next to his bed this time, which tipped me off. I walked over to his bed, and I I looked, I kind of, I know this is gross, but as parents, you know, I just kind of felt around a little bit, and Caleb hadn't wet the bed. I walked in on him in the process of peeing into his hamper, (laughs) And so I look over and I'm like, oh, shoot. No, 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 buddy. Wake up, wake up. No, that's not. Wake up. We can't can't pee in the hamper. We got to go to the potty. And so the rest of it was guiding my son, this groggy son, down the hallway and into the bathroom to finish the job. And so when I think about that story, strangely enough, I think about, I constantly think about the idea or the notion of purpose. You see, I realized that when my wife and I had been so encouraging to Caleb, we were saying things like, great job not going potty at night in your bed. Great job not peeing your pants. And I realized that when we over-communicated that, we had communicated something that we inadvertently did not want to. That the whole goal and purpose for dry nights was that so he wouldn't pee in the bed just so that he could pee in his hamper or anywhere else in his room. Instead, my wife and I then kind of restructured or we readjusted our our encouragement to him. We would say, buddy, great job in getting yourself to the potty to go to the bathroom at night. And as strange and as maybe for some of you uh, sacrilegious as this is going to sound, I think that's actually a great way to describe 
uh, a lot of times the way Christ followers feel in the present life when we think about our present purpose. See, in light of Jesus' resurrection, in light of raising from the dead, in light of the new life, and we talked about this last week, in light of the new life and the availability of that life that is imparted to followers of Jesus, a resurrection kind of living in the present, I think sometimes we can shortchange ourselves in our understanding of God's great purpose in giving us that new life to live out here in the present, such that we kind of run a similar narrative. We think that maybe God's great goal and God's great purpose for resurrection life in the present is simply that I would not sin. Or maybe some of you have said this, that God's great goal for resurrection life in the present is simply that I would avoid hell. But my question is, what if there is a bigger purpose? What if we might be missing out on something with God's goal, his plan, and his design in light of him giving us resurrection life to live in the present? And what might that look like? Now, of course, the Bible has a lot to say with regard to these things. And I think the Bible primarily speaks of two great shifts of thinking that take place when we receive its teaching and when we understand the purpose of resurrection life in the present. And I think the two great shifts go like this. First, the resurrection and an understanding of the present life shifts how I view Jesus. Man, when that changes, certain things begin to unlock in terms of our great purpose for living life in the here and now. And then these things, this, then there's another one that flows out of, no pun intended with the urine, um, that flows out of this, how I view Jesus, then there's also a massive shift in how I view other people. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a look at both of these in turn. First, we're gonna look at how I view Jesus, but we're actually gonna find that both of these are found in a concentrated way in one particular passage. It is this, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. So at this point, if you brought your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out and start making your way to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. If you've got your uh, Bible and an app on your tablet or your device, go ahead and get those out as well. If you're a little bit more of a concrete person, you want something to hold on to, we've got some Bibles under the seats in front of you. You can grab those. And 2 Corinthians 5 will be on page 805 in those Bibles. All right, so here we've got the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in Corinth, and he's gonna give us a little bit of this idea of a shift on how I view Jesus first and then how I view others that we're gonna find in this passage in light of the resurrection. We're gonna take the first two verses first as we unpack the first one, how I view Jesus. So this is what Paul says. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. All right, so real quick, a little bit of background, I think that's gonna be important for us to know as to why Paul writes this letter to a group of Christ followers in Corinth in the first place. See, Paul, for the most part, writes this letter to kind of give a defense of the way that he does ministry the way he does it. So Paul was very interested, and we can read in the book of Acts some of his exploits, and he gives us some indications in this letter and some others of just how, like the degree to where he went to spread the gospel of Jesus, to to spread the great message of this good news of who Jesus was in his death and resurrection. He went to great lengths, and now he's kind of trying to defend that a little bit because there were some people in the city of Corinth who are basically kind of questioning, like, why Paul? Paul, why are you doing this thing, this Jesus, this evangelistic thing? Why are you doing this thing the way you're doing it? Because, Paul, wait a minute. The last time I checked that a lot of times when I look at your ministry, uh, there's persecution, right? There's suffering. 
you've been beaten, you've been imprisoned, that doesn't seem altogether consistent with this resurrection power kind of life that you are preaching in the name of Jesus. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians for the most part to give a defense. He's, he's like saying, this is why I do what I do. This is why I do what I do in the way that I do it. And we can kind of find this in a more concentrated way. Paul's, Paul's giving this justification for the way he does ministry in a concentrated way here in this passage. And so he begins this way. He says, why do I do what I do? He says, well, for Christ's love, he says, compels us. Now, this word compel is, is a very interesting word if you kind of drill it back into the original language a bit. It's a peculiar word that you might not expect Paul to use in this particular context to describe what he's saying. You see, if you were gonna go to a Greek lexicon, which is the equivalent of a dictionary way back when, when Paul was writing, the word compel, you would find that the, the base definition of this word is to bring something tightly together or to bring several things like compacting them and bringing them in this like tight little ball, like this tight little space. It can also mean to compress. You're like, what? Christ's love compresses us? Christ's love brings us tightly together? What, what are you saying there? Now, in other contexts in the New Testament and some other literature of the time, uh, the word compel was used uh, to describe someone who was taken into custody. So you have the notion of being arrested, being cuffed, being taken into custody, being locked up in a jail cell in a confined or a compressed space. Such that this word often then, after a while, became used as kind of in a metaphorical way to describe this, that a person who is so arrested by someone or something that that person is completely captured by it. And that as a result of being confined into this, this tight space and being arrested, they have no other choice but to behave in some radically and often unorthodox to onlookers kind of way. Now, I think most of us, uh, we, we kind of understand this from experience, this version of compel that we find in this passage. Most of us, I think, have some experiences that, that jive with this, or at least we know other people in our lives that we've seen this happen to. Now, for me, this kind of version of compel occurred in my life. As I look back over my life, I, I turned 38 on Friday, by the way. Friday was my birthday, so I turned 38. So as I kind of looked back in that moment at my birthday and reflected on my 38 years of existence, I started to discover that I think my life has been divided now into two equal halves. So at age 19, I, I kind of had this like push pin moment as I look at the timeline of my life, there's this massive kind of shift or pivotal moment that occurred when I met my wife, Sarah. I met my wife, Sarah, at age 19. Now here's the deal. My life now has been segregated into two halves. I have this pushpin moment at 19 to where, like when I look back at it, I can say that, that, that prior to meeting Sarah, I call this before Sarah or BS, right? Not the kind of BS that you're thinking, but, but <laughs> before Sarah, right? My life was BS, right? Before Sarah. And then I have this life after Sarah. See, here, here's what you need to know about my life before Sarah. Just a couple characteristics. I wore tan khakis polo shirts, and brown loafers every day, all the time. I refused to wear jeans, okay? Now, if you were to go into my closet when I was 17, 18 years old, you open up my closet, you would find probably five polo shirts lined up in different colors. 
You go into my drawer, you pull that open, there are exactly seven sets of tan khakis, one for every day of the week, and then my trusty brown loafers. Now, again, some of you might, that ensemble might be consistent of what you wear today. That is totally fine. But when you're 16 years old and wearing that, you're screaming nerd alerts, okay? <laughs> so that's what I wore all the time. And so my curfew, uh, when I, uh, before Sarah, BS in my life, uh, before curfew, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, curfew was 11 o'clock, about 10.30, 11 o'clock. Every single night, I was not only meeting curfew, but I was exceeding curfew. And there were often times where my friends would ask me to do things during the week at night, and I would say, no thanks, I'd rather be at home. I'd rather just stay home, bit of a homebody. Now, if you were gonna ask me before Sarah, in my teenage years, if you were gonna ask me, hey, listen, Seth, money is no object. Whatever you wanna do, what is the one thing that you really wanna do right now? Let us know. Like, hey, it's your birthday. What do you wanna do? Money's no object. And I've been like, ooh, ooh, I know. Let's go to the library. Yeah. Do you know about the library? You can go there. There are books on the shelves. You could take the books out. You could open them. You could read them. And then you could take them home for two weeks. And you could read them at home. Like, that was my idea of a good time. Now, here's the thing. Then I met Sarah. And things in my life began to radically change, radically change. I started to wear jeans. And sometimes you might even find a little hole in the left knee. Woo, real rebellious kind of stuff, right? Started to wear jeans. Uh, my parents can attest to this. I started to arrive home on average every night at three in the morning, three in the morning. And I remember I had a garage door opener, but I would never use it. I'd actually take a credit card that I no longer had open, and I figured out a way to, like, jerry-rig the lock to break into my own home so I wouldn't open the garage door. My parents' room was right above it and wake them up, so nervous and so scared. Now, listen, when I met Sarah, I was exposed to this brand-new world of things called movies, right? Everything changed. And, and it started to show up in my life. And I just remember distinctly my parents and those who knew me, they, they were concerned about me, right? They, 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 were, they, were, they would express their concerns constantly like, Seth, your behavior seems really erratic. That's not like you. But here's the thing. When I met Sarah, whew, there were things. And when, when I was around her, I was so captivated and, and compelled and gripped by being around her. There were aspects of my personality and character that lie dormant for so many years that started to come out just as a result of being around her. I was so captivated, like I wanted to spend every single moment that I could with this girl because I, I just enjoyed like getting to know her more. And again, she was bringing out things in me that I never knew existed. And so my behavior as a result of being arrested and gripped compelled by this relationship caused me to then do certain things that other people who were in my life when they were looking at my life thought was strange, bizarre, weird, or erratic. So we take that idea and we put it in here into 2 Corinthians 5. And Paul says that it wasn't a girlfriend, it wasn't another relationship that gave him that feeling and so changed radically his behavior. He says... It is Christ's love that compels him. Guys, the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, the way I'm doing it is because I've been arrested 
by the great love of God in Jesus. And it's not a love that is fantasy, that's a vapor that's out there and is mystical or weird. It's a love that is concrete. Why? He says, because we're convinced. He's like, man, I am resolutely convinced that Jesus came, one died for all. And here we have like the most compressed, compact statement of the truth of the gospel message right here. That Paul is saying that though he deserved death because of the sin that was in his life, the sin that not only broke him down, but broke and fractured and created dysfunction in every single relationship of his life, that though he deserved the penalty of death for his sin, he says, Jesus said, I'll pay it. I will die in your place. I'll take the responsibility and the ramifications of your sin on my back so that you can go free. What Paul is saying here is that he's compelled by this concrete love of Jesus at the cross, that when Jesus looks at us and he sees in full view of our sin, he says, in obedience to his father, he says, I'll stand in your place. I'll take the hit so that you can go free. And Paul says that this is what compels him to then do what he is doing in his ministry. And notice, Paul says that this relationship, this this compelling love of Christ, then results in him behaving radically differently. Like he can't go back. He's been gripped by this vision of perfect love in Jesus. He says, therefore all died, Christ died for all, what? That the result is that those who live now in this present life should no longer live for themselves, but they should live for him who died and was raised for them. What we have here is Paul saying that when you are truly gripped and compelled by the message of the cross, by everything that Jesus did for you, when that is in front of you constantly, you cannot help but exchange your priorities, your agendas, your agendas for that of Christ's that the Christ follower now in full view of what Jesus did for them says, no, I don't wanna do what I wanna do anymore. I've been arrested. I've been gripped by this love. I've been compelled. The Christ follower says in an increasing way, Jesus, I wanna pick up what you want. What do you wanna do today? Lord, what do you want my life to be today? I think in summary, I love what Murray Harris, who is a scholar that kind of comments on this passage. I love the way he puts this. He says, Christ's love here, again, that concrete love that was shown at the cross, is a compulsive force in the life of believers, a dominating power that effectively eradicates choice. Man, I'm compelled. I can't do anything else in light of this love. It eradicates choice in that it leaves them no option, no option but to live for God. You see, the reality is a major part of now the life purpose in the present for Christ followers is to live a lifestyle that increasingly reflects Jesus with everything that they are and with all that they have. Christ's love, he says, compels us. Now this, I think, leads into this second consideration, this second shift. So how I view Jesus changes the way now that I live my life in full view of his sacrifice for me, which then out of this flows how I view others And we're gonna see this in the following verses in this passage. So here's what Paul says going going on, moving forward. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Man, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul begins here in this kind of second segment of our passage with this really important word, so. In some other translations, it might be uh, translated as therefore. In other words, what follows here is not divorced or separated from what Paul just said about the compelling love of Christ, okay? And so Paul says that as a consequence of the compelling love of Christ and being gripped in such a way that a Christ follower would exchange their priorities for Christ's priorities, Paul says, so in light of that, now there's been a shift in thinking of the way we view others. He says, we regard now no one from a worldly point of view. So what's Paul saying here? Well, he's simply saying that as a result of being arrested by the love of Christ being compelled in this way, that Christ followers can no longer look at anyone in life, those who are around them, in the same way that they did when they were characterized by the old life of sin. Well, and, and why is that? Well, I think it's because Christ followers know if they're truly compelled and gripped by the love of Christ, they're truly compelled in that way, Christ followers know that they did absolutely nothing to earn or to deserve that love. That it is a free gift given by God in his grace. There's nothing, there's no magical word or magical password or something that they did that would cause God to say, okay, Christ's death is for you. My love is gonna be poured out to you. They did absolutely nothing. And so as a result, the compelling love of Christ shifts thinking in a radical way when we think about other people. The follower of Jesus says, man, there is no one that is outside the reach of God's grace. No one. Man, man if, if me in my life was, was not outside the reach of God's grace, well then surely God's grace can reach and extend to anyone regardless of their situation, regardless of their past. In other words, I think what Paul is saying here is that because of Christ's compelling love, Believers in Jesus now say that there are no lost causes. When it comes to God, there are no lost causes in this world. Now, let me just pause for a second. And um, what I want to do is I want to direct a rhetorical question specifically to followers of Jesus that are in this room. Okay, so if you're a follower of Christ and you've claimed that, I just want to ask this again. It's a rhetorical question. So when I ask the question, I don't want anyone shouting back at me, right? So here's the question. And I'm just going to warn you here. It's, it's a little tough. So, so bear with me. Who in your mind have you concluded is outside the reach of God's grace? When you think about people in your life, who in your mind have you concluded is outside the reach of God's grace? Now, I know for me, 
if I'm bold enough, if I'm brave enough to ask myself that question. Sadly, like almost instantaneously, there are names and there are faces that begin to pop in my mind. Names and faces that pop into my mind. And and usually what happens, if I'm going to be honest with you, is there are certain statements, like justifying statements that I make as to why that name popped in the way it did. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, he, man, that guy's just like super arrogant. Yeah, he's kind of turned in on himself. So self-centered, just can't stand to be around that guy. You know, I know that Jesus was all about humility and sacrifice. I can't see that one working out. Or, man, her addiction. It's just changed so much in her, and she's almost too far gone. It's messed her up to, to such a degree where I'm not even sure that she has the willpower to even accept the grace of God that's offered to her. Or how about this one? I think we've all said this. Man, that person hurt me so deeply. That person caused so much pain in my life. I'm not altogether sure that I want them to come to know the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ at all. Now, my goal or my aim in asking you that question, Christ followers in the room, is not to heap condemnation on you, not to give you a greater sense of your own personal guilt. That's not the point. But the point is, if we're bold enough to ask ourselves these questions and recognize that there are names and there are faces that will pop into our head, if we're bold enough to do that, I think we can interpret those or that reaction that we sometimes have as symptoms of a bigger issue, of a greater problem, of a bigger disease. You see, I think, I know for me, I think there are times where I am so overjoyed at the grace of God and the love of Jesus in my life. I'm so overjoyed that I've avoided hell or I'm so overjoyed that I'm increasingly not sinning that I drift mentally or subconsciously into this state where I, I, I honestly like buy into this messed up statement that, well, God sent Christ to die for me so that in this present life, I could simply accumulate more of his blessing. Like, yeah, really, God exists, and the work that he did in me, the great purpose and the great goal of the work that he did in my life was so that he could make my life better, or he could make me more happy. And guys, what Paul is saying here is that that mentality, when we drift into that, that's the equivalent of peeing in a hamper. It's the equivalent of peeing in a hamper. Because what if there is a bigger, more overarching purpose for God sending his son so that he could bring you back to life? What if there is a new mission that followers of Jesus have that is otherworldly and more profound than we could possibly imagine? And I think that's why Paul's statement here, when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old, the old is gone, the new is here. That's why I think this is so powerful. 
You see, if we read verses 14 through 15 and we start talking about the compelling love of Christ and we buy in and we say, Jesus, your life and your priorities, I want those to be mine. And we move on and we got this perplexing statement about not regarding other people from a worldly point of view. But then we land back here like, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here, right? Because my life exists, God, so that you can make it better. If we fail to read beyond this statement, if we close 2 Corinthians here, we will miss this this greater, bigger purpose, this overarching target that God has for us. But if we're willing to read on, look what Paul says. He says, all of this is from God. God sending his son to die for us on our behalf. All of this, like God underneath it all in his great plan is the source of every good and perfect gift, Christ included. God is the source of reconciliation. And all this reconciliation means is bringing somebody from hostility into a place of friendship. Whereas we were once enemies of God, God has sent his son so that we might be reconciled, so that we might become his friends and his coworkers and his partners. But we need to read on. He says, all this is from God. And what was God's great plan? What was the big purpose for God rescuing people out of darkness and bringing them into friendship where they were once enemies? He says, what? He reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the service of reconciliation, that we might be able to, as followers of Jesus, take this great, compelling, gripped by love out to the world around us, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces. Paul says he gave us, God entrusted that to followers of Jesus, the ministry of reconciliation. He repeats himself later. He says he has committed to us, entrusted to us this message of reconciliation, such that I think we can say this about the resurrection and new creation, that God creates us new for a purpose, that the resurrection has not only given us the promise of a heavenly life, it has also given us the purpose of an earthly mission. You see, a person is created new in Christ. They've walked out of the old life of sin and they've entered into a new vibrant relationship with God so that they can extend the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation from God to everyone they come in contact with. Being compelled by the love of Christ means being arrested for the mission of Christ. And in the same way that Jesus procured this reconciliation, this restored relationship with God from being enemies to being his friends. In the same way that Jesus did this by sacrificing himself on the cross so that other people might come to know the great love of God, so likewise, followers of Jesus do the same. We sacrifice and we serve the people around us, letting them know of the great love of God that is expressed in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, so that people might know that God would span heaven and earth to bring them out of being in hostility to him and into a reconciled relationship. And see, Paul just reiterates this as we go on in the passage. He's saying the same thing in a different way. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, for most of us, when we think about the notion or the concept of ambassador, we think of someone who's nominated to this position. They go to a foreign land, they live in an embassy, and they simply communicate public policy. But for Paul in his day, when he's using this word, this idea of ambassadors is so much more, it's so much deeper than that. 
And you can actually discover this when prospective ambassadors in Paul's day were trained for this position of being an ambassador to or for a king. And really the training of an ambassador in Paul's day included two primary components. The first component was that the ambassador had to have a personal relationship with the king. In other words, the ambassador had more access to the king or to the ruler than anyone else did. Why? Because the ambassador needed to discover in a deepening way the heartbeat, the the, the motivations, the priorities, the will, the desires, the values of that king so he could then begin to internalize those himself and embody the king in foreign lands. The ambassador first had to have a personal relationship with the king. They had to be compelled, arrested, and gripped in this relationship with the king. And then the ambassador simply had to be willing to respond in obedience when the king sends. So when the king would say, go, the ambassador would say, where to? I'm here, send me. Ambassadors of Christ Ministers of reconciliation involves being compelled by the love of Christ in a relationship with Jesus and then also being available to be sent by Christ into the world. Um, These concepts kind of landed with me a little bit more in a vivid way about uh, three years ago when um, a friend of mine and I got together uh, for, for wings. We sat down at a restaurant and uh, he's a Christ follower, so, so am I. And uh, we had uh, kind of gone for about a year without seeing each other. And so really the purpose or like the goal of our gathering initially was to get together and just kind of catch up on life. And so um, we, we just love kind of chatting with each other. We've known each other for years. And so we're just really there to, to catch up and also just inform each other of what God was doing in our lives, in, in ministry, and, and in our families. And so um, everything about this connection uh, just screamed like private Jesus gathering, right? So we're sitting here in this private Jesus gathering, and we, I think we kind of made that fully known to everybody else when we prayed over our meal. <laughs> like prayer is the, the warning sign, the neon light that says to everybody else, private Jesus gathering going on over here, right? So we're sitting there, and we're catching up on life, and uh, our server comes over. She, she takes our order. She goes back, and, and about 10 minutes later, she comes back with our food. She sets the food down on the table, and she asks, uh, like many servers do, uh, do you guys need anything else? You guys all set, or what can I do for you? And, and I noticed that she had uh, missed my fries. So you got, if, if you have wings, you got to have fries, right? So I noticed that she missed my fries, and so as politely as I could, I just turned to her and I said, hey, I, I think I ordered fries, right? Would, would that be possible for you to grab that? And she was super apologetic. She goes, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I can, I can definitely help you with that. And then she said something that at the time might have seemed really like subtle or um, it just kind of underneath the surface, just like a, almost like a throwaway, toss away comment. She just said this. She's like, I'm so sorry. Man, today's one of those days where my personal life is really getting in the way of my work. And I remember in that moment, I immediately, my my head turned and I locked eyes with my friend. And I knew in that moment that he and I had this unsaid decision that we had to make. And that unsaid decision was, do we take that clear cry for help? Do we take that, do we kind of toss it off to the side and say, eh, go get my fries, 
we're in my private Jesus gathering here. Just go get my fries, bring them back. Let me continue on doing what I'm doing. Or my friend and I could make the choice to ratify and acknowledge our ambassadorship for Christ and realize that this is a call and a plea for help. And understanding that being an ambassador doesn't merely involve being compelled by Christ's love, but then we, when we're truly arrested by the love of Jesus, we also realize that we are sent and willing to go whenever and wherever. Realizing in that moment that sometimes being sent doesn't involve crossing a massive body of water on Christ's behalf. Sometimes being sent is acknowledging and recognizing that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, at a moment's notice, your king might say, go, it's time, represent me, embody me. Let someone know about God's offer of reconciliation because of what I've done. And so my friend and I, we locked eyes for a second. We kind of both gave each other a cheesy grin. And I turned and I, I was talking to the server and I said, no, don't worry about it. That, that's okay. I, it, it happens to us all the time. And I said, you know, my, I, I get it. I get it. My, my personal life sometimes just struggles in the circumstances of what we're going through. Yeah, it just shows up in our work. And then just a simple question. What's got you so anxious? What's got you so, so anxious? And I kid you not, for the next 45 minutes, she stood at our table, didn't sit down, didn't grab a chair. She neglected all the other tables and all the tips that could come from those tables. She stood there and she just started unloading the really challenging and hard thing that she was going through in that moment. And in the next 45 minutes, my friend and I had the opportunity to clearly and pointedly share with her the truth that God is for her. God's not against her. That though an enemy, God has moved heaven and earth to reconcile her to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. We talked about Christ. We talked about his great love. We shared our own stories about being so compelled and gripped by the love of Jesus and thankful and appreciative of what he has done for us. And man, it was so awesome because after that 45 minutes, uh, I found out later that she wound up showing up at my friend's church that Sunday and she started to get plugged into a group of people, a group of ambassadors that were looking to love Jesus more and more and connect her with those things as well. See, as ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation, if you're a Christ follower, two things. Compelled for the love with the love of Jesus and available to be used by Christ wherever you are at, wherever you are sent. You see, in light of the resurrection, we have to understand that the great purpose of God for humanity living the present life begins when we acknowledge and accept Jesus' sacrifice. But it begins there. It's just the beginning of now a greater purpose that God gives us access to. You see, I think the more powerful reality for Christ followers is that they embrace a brand new mission 
they get to partner with God to share the availability of the new life that God has offered in Christ to everyone they come in contact with. I'm gonna ask the band to come up at this point. And uh, as we kind of close it down a little bit, I just wanna press in a little bit more on, uh, on a couple different maybe audiences here. Uh, the first is if, uh, if those of you that are in this room can say that you've never been reconciled to God, meaning that, that you've never kind of received or embraced or grabbed a hold of this offer that God gives us in Christ as a result of Jesus' sacrifice to go from being an enemy of God to being his friend. If that's you, I would just echo the words of Paul in this passage. Man, I implore you, I implore you on behalf of Jesus to be reconciled to God. I implore you to remember that God has moved heaven and earth to give you access to who he is in a relationship with him. Now, I realize that for some of you, when you hear that, you're like, that sounds really great, but you don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know all the terrible things in my past. For some of you, you're saying, man, you don't even know what I did last night. I'm not sure that God would really want to take somebody like me under his wing and connect with me in relationship. And man, for you, I just got to remind you, have to remind you that there is no one that is outside the reach of God's grace. You're not a lost cause. God has sent his son so that he can impart life into you and to connect you with his heart so that you can begin to live the kind of life he wants for you as a newly created person. I implore you on behalf of Jesus, let that go. Let the laundry list of stuff that you've done in your past go. Be reconciled to God. Say yes to Jesus, right? And if you do that, I just wanna let you know, like just come talk to me. Come talk to somebody on this stage right now, any leaders, go to the Welcome Center. Let us know because we wanna celebrate with you And we want to walk this road together with you to help you understand more what it means to live this kind of resurrection life in the present. What it would look like to now be an ambassador for Jesus. And then for this second audience, for maybe those of you who have been reconciled to God, you've received Christ, you've you've bought into him by faith. I would just say to you, it's time for you to see what you were born to do. That you were born anew in Christ or born again in Christ to do that you've been given birth in this new creation life so that you can embody the gospel and be sent in every walk of life. So that when you think about your neighborhoods, when you think about your workplace, when you think about going to the grocery store, going to a restaurant, getting coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, wherever you are, man, see yourself as sent that you are compelled by the love of Christ, always keeping the gospel and Jesus's love in front of us daily, investing continually in that relationship as an ambassador, but seeing yourself and, and, and having a willingness to respond in obedience when it comes time to embody the gospel and let someone who is hurting know of the great God who has moved heaven and earth to reconcile them to himself. Bottom line is, be reconciled to God. Embrace the greater purpose of resurrection life in the present. Be an ambassador. Be compelled and be available.
Let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge that all of this comes from you. (laughs) You're the one in this great plan that you're working of redemption, of salvation, of reconciliation, of making us your friends. You're the one in this great plan that has done amazing, miraculous things to bring it about. God, thank you for sending Christ into this world. Jesus, thank you for being obedient to die on a cross so that you could take the hit for us, so that we might go free, we might be liberated. And not just liberated so that we can find contentment or happiness in the way that we define it, but that we would even exchange those definitions of the good life for yours and see that the amazing thing that you've called us to is to be the vehicles through which you offer your reconciliation in Christ to the people around us. God, help us, especially for those of us who are Christ followers today, to be further gripped by this mission, to see the greater purpose of what you're doing and how profound it is that you would invite people like us into this plan in the way that you have. And God, for the person that is wrestling right now, who's looking at their past and they're wondering with that laundry list, if grace could reach them. Father, help them by your spirit. Help their hearts to remember that there is no one that is outside your reach, that you spanned the heavens to come down as Jesus Christ and secure this work of reconciliation. God, that love so often to many of us looks reckless. It looks crazy, it looks weird, it looks strange, it looks unorthodox. God, help us to see that it is this kind of love that compels us to respond to you even as we worship and as we sing and to embrace you maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time embrace the mission that you have brought us into. Father, we love you. We thank you. Pray that you would do the work in our hearts that needs to be done in every one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name.